You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to speak with Professor Marwa Shalabi, Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science here at UW-Madison, to reflect on the Arab uprisings 10 years later. Professor Shalabi's research and teaching interests focus primarily on the intersection of politics of authoritarianism and women in politics. Professor Shalabi has conducted original data collection and extensive fieldwork across the Middle East and North Africa. She has also administered public opinion surveys and survey experiments in Egypt, Tunisia, Lebanon, and Morocco. Professor Shalibi's research has appeared in many, many prestigious journals and edited volumes. She is also the co-author of an edited volume, The Evolving Role of Women After the Arab Spring, with Professor Valentine Magadam. She's currently working on a book manuscript exploring the dynamics of women's political representation in Arab parliaments. She's also consulted with government agencies on several research projects related to women and politics in the Middle East and North Africa. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. First things first, thank you so much for joining us on 1050 Bascom today, Professor Shalabi. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you talking to the UW community. Well, we're super happy to have you. But since this is your first time on 1050 Bascom, we'd like to start by asking just a little bit about you and your background. We're curious as to what set you on the pathway towards becoming a professor and studying your area of research. So could you just tell us what shaped your academic and intellectual interests towards the intersection of the politics of authoritarianism and women in politics, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa? Yeah, sure. So um, I was born in Cairo, uh, and but I was raised in Kuwait. Uh, my parents uh, left Egypt after the 1967 war with Israel, uh, like many Egyptians who left Egypt after the war, uh, it, after it was called Inexa, it's like a the disaster. So, uh, but we returned back to Egypt when I was still a child and I continued to live in the Middle East until early 2000s. So uh, as this era, this time or this, this uh, uh, period was very, very uh, full of uh, eventful. So I witnessed uh, the wars, the Islamic surge in the 90s, the assassinations, the diminishing levels of tolerance uh, and conflict and so on. Uh, so as I always say, I, I don't just study the Middle East, Middle East politics, but I also live most of these politics and major event, other major events. So uh, to go to back to your question about teaching, and then I will talk about my research and what made me interested in this specific area of research. So I always love teaching. And, um, and I think that I um, started my teaching career pretty early. Uh, I remember gathering children in our apartment building every now and then to lecture them about some topic or another that I thought it's important for them to know about. Um, so teaching Middle East politics in particular, it's, it's continued to be a passion for me as well as teaching gender politics, um, which is one of the most controversial, controversial areas of research and teaching, as you know. 
So talking about my research and why I chose this specific area of research. So growing up in Egypt, um, I, I observed and experienced as well uh, many inequalities, class inequalities, income, gender, but I was too young to really capture what's going on. So um, add to this that I lived all my life in Egypt under a regime that ruled for more than 30 years. And this really fascinated me. So how do these regimes survive? How do they persist, persist that long? So, and then what is, why is this happening and how can we change it? So this kind of sparked my first interest in authoritarian politics and authoritarianism. And, but later on, when I joined grad school, I was really disappointed by the lack of scholarly attention to authoritarian legislative institutions and the different ways that they can empower dictators and also help them solidify their power. I was very surprised that top political science journals would publish articles on authoritarianism in China, in Russia, in Vietnam, and other parts of the world, authoritarian parts of the world, but not the MENA region. So most of scholarship on legislators in the MENA mainly focused on the link between these legislative bodies and their prospects for democratization or the clientelistic dimension of these, of these um, institutions. But only few studies explored the inner dynamics and outcomes of these institutions, while other scholars just regarded them as inconsequential with little policy relevance or even capable or even being capable of producing meaningful change. So let's just discard them. They're not important to study. And, and something that was very closely related to this issue was the issue of women in politics. Women in the Middle East were always marginalized from politics. And, and there is scholarship and knowledge. It's very, very limited when, we, when it comes to knowing the effect of authoritarianism on their access to power and their actual behavior once they once them power. I found it very unsettling that the Egyptian parliament, for instance, where I grew up, continued to have very few female MPs. Their cabinets, very only a handful of women in specific ministries that deal with women in traditional roles. And I also very few women made it to leadership positions. I deeply believed back then, and I still believe now, that female political inclusion will actually change things and remedy many of the structural inequalities that, that mark the daily lives of women, not only in Egypt, but in other parts of the region as well. So here comes my rationale to study authoritarianism, legislative politics, and gender under authoritarianism. It is so interesting to hear, and I'm really excited to dive into uh, your research. So to kind of give us a little bit of a preface, um, a lot of undergraduates right now uh, were not very old uh, during the Arab Spring, which started more than 10 years ago in December 2010. Can you give the listeners a little bit of a primer on the Arab Spring and what it means in your research and how it factors in? Sure. So I tend to call them the Arab Uprisings. I don't call them Arab Spring. So you can call them Arab Spring, but uh, I don't. Um, so the Arab uprisings are generally, these are waves of protests, protests that swept the region uh, against autocratic rule, corruption, worsening economic conditions, 
regimes, repressive practices, and income inequalities too. So these uprisings, in a nutshell, these uprisings were very spontaneous and they lacked organized leadership and clear transition plans. So people's main demands throughout the region or in the places where Arab uprisings took place, where I will talk more detail later. So the main demand centered around social justice, better economic conditions, equal opportunities, and, and genuine political reforms. So we all know that, um, and my students hopefully, beginning my class, at least class, know now that these protests started in Tunisia in 2010, when Mohamed Bouazizi, who was a merchant from a small village in southern Tunisia, he set himself on fire because of a dispute with local authorities and the haphazard use of, of force against him and his small business that he owned. He was just, he was a merchant selling fruits. So a few weeks later, protests erupted in Egypt, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and also smaller scale protests took place in Morocco, Bahrain, and Oman. So, so in a nutshell, these, these were the main kind of the overview of the uprisings and the reasons behind the uprising. What is really interesting in the study of the Arab uprising, which is still puzzling for us and even many scholars are still struggling with, the divergent outcomes of the uprisings. Why these waves of unrest? They started with almost similar um, similar backgrounds, similar demands, but they led to very, very divergent outcomes. So for instance, like major changes took place in Tunisia um, and Libya and Egypt, where the three presidents, uh, like long-lived presidents, were removed from power and constitutions were completely rewritten. In other countries, the Arab uprisings led to perpetual state of chaos and even civil wars. Think about the cases of Yemen, Syria, and Libya. Also, even not just the diversion outcomes, but also the magnitude of the post-revolutionary reform drastically varied from one case to another. For instance, looking at Morocco, the monarchy introduced substantial constitutional reforms in 2011 and implemented a series of far-reaching political reforms. Contrastingly, for instance, Bahrain introduced very marginal reforms that fell short of the protesters' aspirations and demands. And they used coercive force instead of, instead of, of introducing real reforms, they just used increased force to quell the opposition. Jordan introduced modest constitutional changes with continuous promises to open up the political system, granting increased political and civil freedoms, and but we're still waiting to see actually the, the implementation of these promises. So despite this modest harvest of the Arab uprisings, these massive waves of protests do have historical significance and importance. So I'm not trying to, to, to minimize or belittle the effect. Yes, they did not uh, achieve the desired outcomes in all places or, the, or they achieved a marginal outcomes in some, but they are very important and they have as a historical significance that we cannot deny. So, for instance, for the first time, citizens who lived most, if not all of their lives, under autocratic rule were able to break these barriers of fear and challenge long-standing regimes who were notoriously known for their brutality and repressive practices against any dissenting voice. 
It also showed the power of youth in the region, who currently represent almost one-third of the region's total population. These events were mostly organized and orchestrated by the youth, as we already know, in Egypt, in Tunisia, and Syria, and so on. One really interesting development and that I'm very passionate about is how these massive waves of protests shattered stereotypes about the role of women in the region and showed clearly that Arab citizens, and it's also not just women, it's also defied this notion of the exceptionalism of the Middle East. And it showed how Arab citizens, just like their counterparts across the world, are very supportive of democracy and are willing to sacrifice even their own lives to live under a democratic system where citizens enjoy equal rights and access to opportunities. So, so there, yes, there, there is a very kind of modest harvest of the uprisings, but they are very, very important and they have historical significance and, um, and, very, and led to substantive um, reforms in some places, while um, minor reforms in other, which of course we can talk about in more detail later if you want to. To kind of follow up on that, one thing that I think we're really, really interested in is why there were these varying outcomes. Because, you know, as, as you've mentioned, in some of these countries, there were really, really lasting democratic changes, such as in Tunisia, but in others, they, uh, they were more superficial. You talked about um, some of the kind of modest uh, changes in Bahrain and other places that were also accompanied uh, by coercive methods as well. So I'm wondering, how do researchers look at these and what were some of the main factors that you think play into why these uprisings were more successful in some places and then versus others? I think this is a very um, important question. So but why did the Arab uprisings fail? And we, I always get asked this question in different, um, in different conferences and events, trying to understand what went, basically what went wrong and why are we uh, observing these very divergent outcomes. But I always, I always say, and I, I still tr struggle with this in my, in my own research and my own, um, in my own life in the Middle East as well. When I go back. But it, it is really hard to generalize across places. And, but generally speaking, as I mentioned earlier, these protests were, was, they did not have clear leadership or a vision for post-transition realities. Later on, many actors tried to claim credit and leave and, and reap the harvest of others' hard work. Think about the Islamists in Egypt, for instance. Also, regimes over-relied on repressive measures and brutality to crush dissenting voices, which led to endless cycles of violence while triggering ethnic and racial divisions in places like Syria and Yemen. And regimes also played the repression card. And, and when uh, things started to worse and, and, and they couldn't control the, the, the magnitude of the protest, they started using, they started tightening their security grip and made sure to silence any dissenting voices and responded with increased repression, as I mentioned, without introducing real changes or even demonstrating any will and willingness to compromise, like the state, like the case in Bahrain, for instance. One factor that is also overly over that it's 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 very overlooked from understanding the, the these different outcomes is the role of the old regime guards who are benefiting from who are benefiting the most from the relationship with the ruling elites 
And these these old regime supporters actually were these transition's worst enemies. They did not want to lose privileges and the perks that they used to enjoy due to their proximity to the ruling elites and the cronism that they used to enjoy. So, and add to this, for instance, looking at the examples of Tunisia and Egypt, something that I will talk more about um, um, in a little bit is the role played by the military in these Arab republics and how they, for instance, in Egypt, the Supreme Council of Armed, Armed Forces, the SCAF in Egypt, was the, was the main institution managing the transition and they manipulated the political scene in the country after the removal of Hosni Mubarak in 2010. They were unwilling to yield power and continue and, and the military continue to rule Egypt until today. Let's dive into that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about Tunisia, how that can be kind of seen as a success, and then maybe put that in contrast to uh, the military's role in Egypt in a little bit more detail? Sure. Why did Tunisia succeed while others didn't? So so this is kind of the, a million dollar question. So why Tunisia? Why, why Tunisia was able to make it while uh, Egypt and Libya and others are still struggling to uh, to have a democratic system? So, so scholars actually disagree about why Tunisia was able to make it. So some, some experts and scholars attribute this success to the strength of civil society organizations, especially trade unions and women's groups prior to the revolution, uh, while others assert more institutional and structural factors, such as the professionalization of the military and its weak engagement in the governing trusts, um, even before, that's before the, the uprisings, and also the fragmentation of opposition factions in Tunisia. So, but what is remarkable about, in my opinion, what is remarkable about, about the Tunisian case was the strength of women's involvement, not just during the Jasmine Revolution, but throughout the transitional period. Tunisian women played a very important role in the post-revolutionary constitution writing process, unlike Egypt, for instance. They were very well represented in the National Constituent Assembly, the NCA, and they were able to introduce substantial changes in the new constitution relating to women's rights. The text of the constitution ha have three main areas of progress. They have the, the gender for gender equality, there's a state commitment to eradicating all forms of violence, establishing gender parity in all legislative um, decision-making institutions. So they had very, uh, very strong improvements and very uh, solid uh, advancements for women. And, and, and women also played a very strong role in this transition, supporting the, the, uh, the, the transition and having an impact on, on leading, leading to a, a successful transition and consolidation. Silver lining, but there, of course there's always a silver lining. <laughs> So, uh, so Tunisia continues to have protests and public dissatisfaction. As we speak, actually, there are ongoing mass protests against worsening economic conditions and controlled political corruption. Um, a survey that was recently done um, in the Arab world was actually showing that economic conditions now in Tunisia, perceptions, even the perceptions about economic conditions in Tunisia now are actually worse than 10 years ago before the uprisings. 
and still very high levels and uh, with very high levels of cronyism and political corruption, especially among old regime supporters and elites. Again, there are still clear, um, very, very clear and, 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 um, and widening socioeconomic disparities between the big cities and other localities on the periphery. This is still a major issue for Tunisia that they need to handle and to deal with to ensure a smooth consolidation of democracy. But this, this may sound a bit surprising, but Tunisia was actually one of the top countries with youth joining extremist movements like ISIS, especially those from these marginalized areas in Tunisia. So the inability of the new government to handle these deep-rooted political and, and economic issues is actually threatening the future of Tunisian democracy. And this is why, um, I, th I think this is why um, Western uh, powers and especially the US, they need to make sure to support the transition, especially economically, given the, the harsh economic conditions that the country is facing right now. Well, I, I want to talk about the role of the US and the West a little bit more specifically. Um, because some in the region and around the world have accused the U.S. of not doing enough or only giving kind of middling support to um, democratizing countries in the fear, uh, based on the fact that the U.S. might fear that it's damaging its own interests. You know, for example, in 2003, then President Obama refused to call the military takeover in Egypt a coup. And additionally, the United States focused most of its military efforts in Syria, not towards ousting the dictator Assad, but rather towards fighting the Islamic State. Um, so my question then is, what role should the U.S. and the West play in supporting the goals of the Arab Spring? You mentioned that it involves supporting these democratizing countries, but how should we do that? What actual tactics are the best way for us to do that? So before I answer this question, um, let me state two general points that, I, that, then again, that's my opinion. It's not necessarily um, um, sweeping generalizations that I'm trying to make or anything. So first, let's just, let me say that the US military intervention in the Middle East has never been a good idea, <laughs> never. And, um, and Iraq and Afghanistan are great examples for them. However, we should also note that when the U.S. choose to stay disengaged or start a transition and then leave before order is restored, this always opens the doors for other actors to interfere and fill this gap, which always lead to endless cycles of proxy wars and chaos. So we're seeing Iraq, for instance, right now and Syria. So this is the first point that I, um, I, I want to emphasize. The second point that um, I would like also to, to highlight here is that the second the Arab uprising actually took everyone by surprise. So even us as regional scholars and act and experts were actually surprised by the Arab uprisings. And and all of us were like, how how come we, we didn't see this coming? So it was a very, very messy situation with so many variables at play. So I so we, and then the US was no exception in this, and the reaction was no exception. So there's a lot of confusion, a lot of um, indecisiveness, uh, weighing different options, trying things. But but it it was a surprise for for all of us, and um, and I I I I I understand the US position from that perspective. So focusing on the Obama administration. So the Obama administration's response to the uprisings, it was clear that the administration 
after figuring after trying to read the situation, they concluded that it would shape its response on a country by country basis. And this is why you will find very different reaction depending on the Arab states strategic importance to the US, right? So to, to put it just like more bluntly, so the US reaction to the uprisings in Egypt and Bahrain, which are both very close allies to the US, was very, very different compared to other states undergoing unrest. So the US can live without the Tunisian regime. That's okay. But uh, for the US, but for Egypt, for instance, Egypt was a very different story. Egypt always been a very close ally to the US, supporter of the Arab-Israeli peace process. And Bahrain was also uh, is the home for the US Fifth Fleet in the, in, in, um, in the Persian Gulf, been there since the Gulf War. So, so the US decided to disengage from Syria too early on after a successful military intervention provided very little economic aid to assist transitioning states and those affected by the uprisings. So, it, so the choices of the U.S. to disengage and to provide very minimal uh, economic assistance, it doesn't just have a consequence on how the politics, how they will shape politics after the transition, but also it opens the doors, as I mentioned, for other powers to, inter to intervene and try to fill this gap. And then we find this is where we found so much Gulf intervention in Egypt affairs after the uprisings. And you see the, the Russian and the Turkish intervention in, in Syrian affairs in, in Syria. So after the after the, the disengagement, the US disengagement from Syria. So so this doesn't just affect how uh, just it's not just the US leaving in the middle of the conflict or in the middle of the transition, but it also opens the door for more chaos and, and more and more and more intervention by other actors as well. What are your expectations as you're looking at the Biden administration's uh approach to diplomacy and intervention in the region like what are your expectations for for how the administration is going to approach this it's i think it's too early to speak about biden's administrations at, or to evaluate their their uh, plans for now i think the administration's priority at this point to deal with this global global pandemic but um but but bringing back but one thing that I know that they brought back on some foreign policy team who were there from 2010. I think there is, this is a good sign if, if, the, of the, if the team has hopefully learned from the mistakes of the, of the 2010 uh, uh, period. Um, so I think this is a good step. Also the repeal of the Muslim ban uh, as well as the release, the recent release of the intelligence reports confirming the involvement of the Saudi crown prince in, P in the MBS and the murder of Khashoggi. The, the US decided not to do anything about it, but at least the release of the report, I think it's a good sign, as well as the intention to reopen the uh, the nuclear, the Iran nuclear uh, uh, deal. So there are all good signs. But again, it's I think it's just too early to evaluate these efforts and speak to uh, their effectiveness. But what I know for sure <laughs> that the U.S. has a very strong role to play now, a role that was ignored by the Trump administration over the past four years uh, to address human rights violations in the region, which is just rampant at this point, uh, humanitarian disasters resulting from the armed conflicts in Yemen and Libya and Syria, 
develop, uh, there is a strong, huge need to develop a MENA regional response to the pandemic to control the virus and ensure equitable distribution of the vaccines. Now we hear news from the region every now and then how uh, how marginalized communities are are being banned from or being um, um, they're not having access to to the vaccines that this country even countries even get as aid from from Western countries. So, uh, for instance, like in in Lebanon, they're denying the they're denying the refugees, the Syrian refugees, and in Lebanon, they're denying them access to the vaccine. Uh, we see also how Gaza, they're now they're trying to figure out how to gonna get vaccine, uh, vaccinate people in Gaza. So, so I think it's, it's important for the US to develop a, um, a plan to about the distribution and uh, controlling the pandemic. And also to, to restructure the Israeli-Palestinian peace efforts. I mean, these are all very urgent matters that need immediate work and uh, attention from the administration. And I think the next uh, few the next year or two, we'll be able to evaluate these efforts. Speaking of evaluating things over time, you know, you made the point earlier that while there's been some significant progress towards democracy in Tunisia, current conditions might indicate a little bit of bad weather with the unsettling feelings amongst the populace over the economy and other things. And kind of on the flip side of the coin, there are other experts who argue that the Arab Spring is still more or less going on as an Iraqi process that will continue in fits and starts, but is just a gradual process of democratization. So my question is, first, what do you make of this argument that these long-term struggles for democracy are still just as present in the region, just maybe in a bit more of a sporadic nature than we originally assumed. And also, could you help us think through the timeline and factors at play that might affect lasting democratization over the course of the next couple of decades or so? So I think the past wave of the uprising had very modest outcomes, as I said, but I, but I don't think that the Arab uprisings died or failed it's 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 a very very important point to emphasize here so reality is the original demands of the uprisings continue to be unfulfilled bottom line calls for political and civil freedoms better economic conditions enforcement of the rule of law eradicating corruption still need to be realized they're not going to go anywhere the pandemic has only worsened the existing conditions, as we previous, as I as I noted, with a higher level of unemployment and and and, um, and inflation and so. But um, but nothing changed. So so these demands are still unfulfilled. So regimes at this point, regimes in in resource poor countries like Egypt, Algeria, Morocco. They're just silencing these demands, like just like giving painkillers, right? By introducing these in piecemeal reforms or just using coercive force and repression to silence opponents. In the oil-rich monarchies, you think about Qatar, UAE, Saudi Arabia, they're all pumping up their subsidies, giving and and um, and, and increasing public sector employment, giving more incentives to appease citizens and buy loyalty. But this is all this is unsustainable. Oil money will will deplete very soon, and 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 it's coercive matter measures in places like Egypt and Morocco and Jordan. They're not going to work anymore. It, there is a limit where you can use coercive 
force and violence, which is going to lead to more violence and, and more dissent and even radicalization. So think about Egypt as an example. Egypt has actually built since 2011, they built, they built 19 more prisons. And we have since 2011, we have 60,000 political prisoners, political activists who are prison, in prison right now. So how many people are you going to imprison? How, how, how far can you push this? So, so change is, is, needs to happen. Like genuine reforms need to happen. Democracy need to ha needs, has to happen. So, so giving this kind of uh, short-term uh, uh, painkillers, yes, they may work on the short-term. No, I don't think they will work on the long-term. Just to sum, so I don't think these uprisings, the, I, don't, I think these uprisings are far from over and the next wave of protests will take us by surprise, just like the first wave. So we were all, uh, we did not expect uh, the, the, the first wave and I think the second wave will be the same thing. As we're coming up on time, we want to make we wanted to make sure that we ask you about a blog post that you recently uh, wrote about how COVID has disrupted research in the region. Um, and we kind of wanted to get your take on the short and long term implications of this disruption in research. Yes. So I this is a very interesting topic for me that I love to talk about. Uh, not because <laughs> because the pandemic is a great thing, but I'm just saying about the how uh, how us as academics, um, uh, our lives actually has been disrupted in in very different ways that uh, that I think need to be highlighted. And um, I mean, like anybody else, lots of people also there. The, the pandemic disrupted their lives, but um, so so as I mentioned in the post, and and again, this post is based on a survey that I did with academics working. Um, uh, on men as scholars and other uh, other uh, I mean men a region and other regions as well as scholars from different disciplines not just political scientists and um, and um, and international studies. So the 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 the, the blog and the discussion that I will summarize now. These are based on a survey that I actually fielded for uh, academics to answer a set of questions and I, I, I analyze the answers for these questions in the blog posts and other papers that are coming out soon. So it is not, it's, it's, it's without doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic transformed the way we teach, we work as, as, as academics and as professors, we teach and we work and carry out research. But for most scholars conducting, like especially those comparative, com conducting comparative research, their ability to travel for data collection is, is not just for them to do their work and, and, and publish, but it's also for career advancement and, and uh, getting promoted and getting raises and so. So, so while, we, while I think that the pandemic interrupted the most scholars' research plans and their ability to present work and plan summer research activities, researchers who actually study the Middle East tend to encounter higher barriers, and I will say why. So I think that the given the authoritarian nature of politics in most parts of the region, many researchers face security and ethical challenges associated with conducting fieldwork remotely, especially with vulnerable and displaced populations, right? So, so we already, like many scholars, I remember when I started doing uh, my dissertation and doing field work for my uh, doctorate degree, it was like a mission impossible to do field work in the Middle East. And that was back in 2009. 
So, so, so scholars researching the MENA region had to grapple with heightened security and ethical concerns surrounding field work. And this only, and this only worsened as in the new COVID reality. So the prevalence of authoritarian politics across the region, it adds a, an additional layer of complexity for scholars' ability to carry out projects amidst the, in the middle of the pandemic. So, so while like online research designs, like interviewing subjects over web-based videos or Skypes and so have been hailed, have been hailed for as the answer, but they also raise uh, like many serious ethical and security concerns. These technologies in the MENA region have become mediums for state surveillance and crackdown and ra raising concerns surrounding trust, security, safety, not, not just our own safety, but also the safety of our research subjects. It's <laughs> like I can do the interview in Skype um, and I am here in the US sitting in the in my air conditioned office. And you're just not just and you're endangering others who are interviewing in the region who are who live under these regimes. So other things that I think would be problematic the way we conduct these kind of studies under the pandemic is how it excludes the voices of the disadvantaged resource subjects who might not have access to internet and digital technology. So these are all challenges that we used to face as scholars and, and the pandemic only made it just worse for us to, to, to continue working and do our work in the region. But I also think there, there are many long-term implications for these developments. So, and this will include like less career development in, in opportunities for us, those who are mainly those who study the MENA region and who has worked, especially those whose work rely on field work and data collection and, and, and. Uh, there will be also, there will be less reliance on original data sources and primary data, which may have a negative long-term effect on MENA scholarship. Field research will not only be delayed, but also devalued, since like big data and regression-based research may not necessarily face similar challenges. Just to sum up, scholars who carry out field research, regardless like if they utilize qualitative, quantitative, they will face distinct challenges, especially in publication, especially if these publication expectations continue to remain the same. And I also worry about that regimes will, will use the, the, the pretext of controlling the pandemic to crack down on scholars conducting research on sensitive issues relating to the pandemic, like human rights violations, accessibility to healthcare, and so on. So, so that can also open the door for these uh, authoritarian regimes to further crack down on scholars and even uh, the people that we research. It sounds like we almost need a study on the study to really figure out what's going on here. <laughs> exactly. But yes. as we're coming right up on time here, you know, we want to ask something that we've been asking all of our guests at the end of the podcast. And, you know, it's been a very long and at times quite dark year in global politics. So we want to ask you, what makes you hopeful right now? What in your life, be it in your professional life, personal life, just anything, has been a source of hope for you? And there's so many. So I think the the substantial 
I would say the thing that gives me the most hope is the really the substantial increase of women in politics after the Arab uprisings. We did not talk about that in the podcast, but I just why I wanted to highlight here is that um, women's representation right now in, in national parliament stands at about 20% compared to less than 10% before the Arab uprisings. They almost doubled. We're getting there. So thanks to the introduction of the mandatory gender quotas in Algeria, in 2012, the expansion of party lists in Morocco in 2011, and also the enactment of the provisional quota system in Egypt in the 2015 elections, and also the gender parity clause in Tunisia. So these are all uh, very promising reforms that would make changes in women's lives across the region. There are other positive changes, uh, social uh, changes that are give, give me a lot of hope. So women are now driving in Saudi Arabia. You know, women in Saudi Arabia were not allowed to drive until 2018. And new laws on domestic and sexual violence are being issued and hotly debated across the region for the first time, which gives me a lot of happy, happiness and hope and, and, and seeing change coming. And even political change, even if we think that political change is not attainable at this point, and we, we may think that the Arab uprisings maybe they, they had a very, uh, modest outcome but social change across the region is happening and it's i feel like it's like a tide as this no one will be able to stop that is an excellent point to leave off on i wish we could have talked more about that so i guess we'll just have to have you back to talk more <laughs> about that um, but thank you so much for joining us today professor my pleasure For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now. <laughs>